Good evening, everyone. Let's try that one again. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, get the, get the lungs going, breathing. I'd lead you in a meditation, but I probably wouldn't want to get out of it. So we've got a little more of a head than heart today. Uh, it's great to have you here. I'm David Leslie, director of the Rothko Chapel, and really, really honored to have you uh, for this uh, really, really great program. Just one housekeeping note, if you would turn off or silent your uh, cell phones. i got to make sure mine is off. One time my kid called during a program. And also ref uh, refrain from taking pictures because I think in doing that, it really gives us a chance to be better connected to each other and in the environment for, for uh, I think, thoughtful engagement. So we really appreciate that a lot. And in the spirit of engagement, for more than 50 years, especially for those who might be here for the first time, the Rothko Chapel has committed itself to be a welcoming and inspiring place, complete with opportunities for individual and community spiritual growth and serious engagement on critical social justice issues. Central to our fostering of respectful dialogue is discovering not only what we have in common, but maybe even more importantly these days, well, how do we deal with critical issues and perspectives where there is serious and at times really difficult disagreements? So tonight as part of our dialogical practice and commitment. We're grateful to have in the chapel with us this evening professors Brad Paxton and Anthony Penn, who will discuss their recently published book by Beacon Press, a master class on being human, a black Christian and a black secular humanist on religion, race, and justice. The book itself emanated from a series of emails, conversations started in 2020 between Brad and Tony that together formed the basis for the book. Recognizing the marked polarization in our communal life, the authors embarked on an experiment attempting in-depth discussions that probed their deep differences about serious topics with the ultimate goal of promoting constructive engagement, enhanced understanding, and more compassion among people with different identities, beliefs, and practices. Now, without giving away their talk or the book, I do want to say that they acknowledge the centuries-long disagreements and, as you know, at times conflictual situations between Christian and secular humanist traditions. In their conversation, they, like we here at the chapel, sought to expose the assumptions that each group makes about one another with intellectual rigor and compassion. While not claiming that dialogue or mutual understanding is a panacea for discord between the two groups, or really any groups, they do believe that in the embrace of difference, not the elimination of difference, is an effective classroom for learning to be better humans. Their courageous work is not, it's not always easy, to say it again, the courageous part of their work is really an affirmation that it's not easy to dialogue, it's not easy to break bread, and it's not easy to share company, oftentimes with those who hold different beliefs and understandings about the world in which we live for the pressure to engage, the pressure not to engage, can be very intense, especially from one within one's own house. 
that makes sense to you, that the pressure not to engage with the other can be very intense, especially from one's own house. Now with that, I will just briefly say something about each of them and their full bios are in your program. Dr. Brad Peck, Peck Braxton, I'll start with him because he came the farthest today, all the way from somewhere, somewhere between the Midwest and East Coast, I think, given your uh, uh, place of uh, uh, ministry, teaching, and work, uh, is a professor of public theology at Chicago Theological Seminary, Progressive Graduate School of Theological Education, known for its leadership in social justice and interfaith engagement. He's also the Senior Program Advisor for Living Religion, Creative Encounters in the United States. Um, he is also founding senior pastor of The Open Door, an inclusive congregation in Baltimore, Maryland, committed to social activism, LBGTQ plus equality, and interfaith collaborations. He holds a PhD in New Testament studies from Emory University, a master's degree in theology from the University of Oxford, and a BA in religious studies from the University of Virginia. Dr. Anthony Penn received his PhD from Harvard University in 1994, a BA from Columbia University, MDiv and MA, both from Harvard, and an honorary doctorate degree from Midville Lombard Theological School. In 2003, Dr. Penn accepted an offer from Rice University, becoming the first African-American to hold an endowed chair at the university. He joined the faculty as the Agnes Cullen Arnold Professor of Humanities and Professor of Religious Studies at Rice University. And he also founded and directs the doctoral concentration in the study of African-American religion at Rice. And we're very proud to call him a Rothko advisor. Thank you for that. And tonight, we're really especially grateful for Tracy Jay, who is our moderator this evening. Her work is focused on creating incremental and organic shifts to the status quo. In her work, she centers on humans, celebrates differences, and honors lived experiences. The expertise of her proprietary approach is based on evidence-based practices in clinical and cognitive psychology and communications research and focuses on what makes us fully human at both our best and at our worst. Tracy holds a BA in business management from Our Lady of the Lake University and an MA in strategic communication and leadership from Seton Hall University. So with that, can we give a warm welcome to our speakers this evening and I'm gonna turn this over to Tracy. Thank you all very much. Well, hello. Um, I am from Texas, so I say y'all, hey y'all. Hey. I um, am going to yield the floor to my esteemed colleagues so that they can have a little bit of a conversation. And then I will jump into the conversation like double dutch when we get a moment. Is that fair? That'll work. All right. I'll begin by saying I have always thought that the two sweetest words in the English language, when they are sincerely uttered, are the words, thank you. Thank you to the leadership team here at Rothko Chapel. Thank you, Tracy. Thanks, friends, for coming to join this conversation. 
And I'm extraordinarily grateful to my friend and beloved brother, Tony Penn, for this marvelous journey that we've been on. So thank you, as always, Tony, for a chance to talk about our work. I do bring you greetings from Chicago Theological Seminary and the Open Church of Maryland, where I am privileged to serve as pastor. If you want to give any opening words, Tony, and then we're going to get right down to the meat of the matter. I share Brad's gratitude. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us. It's very much appreciated. Very, very much appreciated. So, Brad, when folks say this academic work is objective, they're just lying. Absolutely. Right? That there is something deeply autobiographical in the work we do. We tend not to acknowledge that, but it's just below the surface. So, this morning over breakfast, we started talking about that. Within the book and within most of our conversations, we talk in terms of our autobiography, but with respect to childhood, how we grew up in faith, and for me, how I left it. But we, what we seldom talk about is the kind of academic work, that early experience of the academy that informed who we are now. We seldom talk about that, but this morning we did. And I think there are some really interesting distinctions. And, and, and so for me, with both the academy and the church, my posture was one of resistance because there were ways in which both of those communities showed me a great deal of disregard, right? As soon as I no longer believed, church had nothing positive to say about me, right? The folks who on one Sunday loved me, the next time I saw them didn't have anything to say for me, to me. And, and our, our PhD experiences were different. I did not enjoy being at Harvard. There was nothing about that experience that I found nurturing. It was a toxic environment for me, toxic environment. As an MDiv and as a PhD student, it was toxic and brutal. And I had selected Harvard because it was my understanding, and this came from good authority, that that would be an ideal place because it was a divinity school, but it was a divinity school that was concerned with the life of the mind and not ministry. So my attitude is this is cool, right? This works for me. And that was true to the degree you could still at least talk in terms of a kind of vague faith. But for someone who did not believe but said they were studying theology, this was a difficult environment. And for faculty, the attitude tended to be, if you are having trouble here, if this doesn't feel like it's a fit, the problem is you. The problem cannot be Harvard. Perhaps you just don't belong here. So I'm wrestling with what it means to be a secular humanist, and I'm kind of growing into this terminology. I had to do it by negation. I knew I was no longer a Christian, but what I was was kind of lost. So I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this in an environment that showed me no love. And, and I was interested in the study of religion for, for two reasons. One of them somewhat noble, the other rather pragmatic. One, these were questions of meaning that I thought were profound, that informed and influenced how folks moved through the world, what they were willing to live towards and what they were willing to die for. This needed to be studied, but I also grew up in a context where we, we often had to rob Peter to pay Paul. We didn't have a whole lot of money. 
So the idea that I could work hard for seven, eight years and have a job for life? That sounded like a win to me. A, wait a minute, a job for life? A regular paycheck for life? I can send some money home to my mama and, and I can do this forever? If I just get it right the first seven, eight years, this worked for me. But I moved into the profession with a posture of opposition. In part, my own intellectual well-being required that kind of posture. But your experience, I think, was different. What I love so much about this conversation that Tony and I are having is something we tried to model in the book. It's not something that scholars often do is be vulnerable with one another and tell our stories at a deeper level. And Tony is absolutely right. I believe that autobiography is theology. It is one very important way to get to that which we think is sacred. And I say often when talking about my journey, I am very clear about this. My mother was a kindergarten teacher for almost 30 years. And the reason that I got a PhD was I didn't want to work that hard. <laughs> All right, because kindergarten teachers really teach. Professors, we mess around with people's minds at the late end of the game. You're telling secrets. Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. And then my daddy was the quintessential community organizer, Baptist preacher, the most righteous human being I think I have ever known. And so I grew up in an environment where there was this marvelous creative tension between thinking about classroom work and academics and thinking about religion and community engagement. And that was, that was nurtured all the way through my engagement. And I'm very clear that my parents did something for me that I continue to reflect on now decades later. In my adolescent bedroom, while I had the pictures of all of my sports heroes, they hung two posters and they were doing something that allowed me decades later to have this marvelous engagement with one of my most significant moral tutors. One of the posters was from Dr. King, where Dr. King said in that brilliant sermon, A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart, rarely do we find people who willingly engage in hard, solid thinking. There is an almost universal quest for easy answers and half-baked solutions. Nothing pains some people more than having to think. And then the other poster that they put up was from Oliver Wendell Holmes. A mind once stretched by a new idea never regains its original dimensions. <laughs> so my parents, while rooted in a kind of warm, evangelical Christian piety, were signaling to me, the world is bigger than just what we have put into you. And so then as I launch into my career as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia, I was sharing with Tony at breakfast that I had in my fourth year as a student at the University of Virginia, a wonderful professorial mentor who kind of flipped the script on me. She knew that I was preparing for ministry and thinking about a life as a theologian. And she said to me, it's clear that the congregational pulpit is important to you, so don't neglect that. You're going to go and be a lecturer and a professor, great, but don't neglect the congregation. So in an academic environment, I had a professor say to me, there is real value to engaging religious communities. So my whole journey has been a, a relatively positive one where there's been this creative tension between the kind of classroom engagement and the kind of earthy congregational life. I will say there was a moment that 
um, really informs uh, a lot of the connection that Tony and I have to the communities that have shaped us when I was a second year student at the University of Virginia, which meant, of course, studying religious studies, that I knew more than God, right? And I postured myself as if I knew more than God. I came back to our home congregation where my dad served as the pastor for 33 years. And there was one of the mothers of the church. And so this is this kind of, there's an earthiness, right? That Tony and I, where we have been in many of these elite spaces, we, we, know, about, we know about religious mothers and, and grassroots folks. And this mother of the church, who was really the pastor of the church, she had more juice than my daddy had. And that's why he was the pastor for 33 years. He knew the real pastor of the church. Yep. And Mariah Taylor, she pulled me up as only those matriarchs and community can do. And she looked me in my eye and she said, boy, don't get educated away from your people. And so part of what I think is so fascinating about this book is Tony and I have come at this from very different trajectories in some sense, starting in some similar ways and places, but diverging in other ways and yet finding a common table to come together for dialogue. There is a, there's an earthiness here. There's a, that this is, this is not just your typical academic project. We know what they look like. We've been doing those for decades. But as we say in the book, this is something about legacy as well, given where the world is, given where we are in the world, that we wanted to model something but something that also had the scent of life and the mm -hmm. scent of the autobiographical journeys you know, that we bring to this. So the academy was more of a place where it, it wasn't quite as confrontational um, for me and the mentoring was one mm -hmm. that made sense of the creative tension. Mm -hmm. But it also opened me up, as my parents tried to do from the very beginning, to say, son, think. Think deeply. Don't just hold on to these native ideas we've given you. Think differently. And my father, who is in the great life now, I think he is taking great delight, this Baptist preacher from Virginia, that I am learning more about being human from someone who does not have conceptions of, of theism any longer. So, Dad, I listen to you, and that's why I'm hanging out with Tony now. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I don't know about you, Brad, but I, I, I think I was thinking about the academy wrong, right? I, I knew the church. I'd spent 25 years in the church. I left as an elder. I could marry, bury, baptize, consecrate the communion elements, right? I performed weddings, funerals. I, I knew this world, and I knew a different world. I figured I'd move into the academy, and at least the folks who looked like me would be willing to engage me, right? That we would, we would share something that there were ways in which Harvard reinforced this imposter syndrome. So I, I tell my students, they ask, well, do you ever get over it? And they say, no, you don't get over it. You learn how to manage it. But to the extent the academy is still the same, no, you don't get over this. You learn to manage it. So I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with this, and I'm figuring the people who look like me, they're going to do justice, right? They're going to... But to the extent to which folks were unwilling to engage me, because I didn't believe, just kind of baffled me, because we're supposed to be wrestling over ideas, right? We're doing battles over ideas. This is not personal. So we ought to be able to engage. But the number of folks who, in various ways, suggested I needed to surrender my black card, because black folks believe. And if you didn't believe, their attitude was, well, you went to Harvard and Gordon Kaufman and Richard Niebuhr, and these folks just messed you up. And now, 
we're giving you a chance to get right, but if you don't take it, then we can't talk. So I spent so much time struggling to develop conversation partners in a context where I thought folks would want to talk to me, but didn't. You know, my attitude was, I'm challenging you on your ideas because I value them. If I didn't care about your ideas, I'd pat you on the back and say, peace, you know, just go about your business, everything's fine. But to the extent I'm challenging you on these ideas, I'm valuing you and your ideas, but this isn't how that was encountered. It was understood as disrespectful coming from somebody who shouldn't be talking to us because he doesn't go to church, right? He doesn't have anything to do with us because we about the church. And so the, the, the fact that we could change that, right, that we could have conversations in which we disagree, but disagree in a way that was nurturing, that allowed us to push the conversation forward, that did not require the brutalization of opinion, right, that it did not understand difference as a problem to solve, but rather difference as an opportunity was something I hadn't experienced in my almost 30 years in the academy at that point. So this, this opportunity to really engage, for me, was this changes it. This flips the script. And so engage we did. Tony and I have known, as you're hearing, in terms of our, our rich academic journeys, we've known each other by reputation and those kind of corridor conversations that you have at scholarly conferences. We'd run into one another, have a few moments to chit-chat. But there had never really been serious, prolonged engagement. All of that changed as a result of three marvelous episodes, two of which were in large measure facilitated by the Smithsonian Institution. And Tony and I have had rich connection with the Smithsonian over the last few years. And the first was dial back three years ago to the summer of 2020 and just remember where our country and our world was in those horrific moments as it relates to all kind of brutalization of life, often at the hands of police officers and the kind of protest that is going on and right in the center of the pandemic. We were invited by the Smithsonian to curate an online discussion about hope. And hope is a concept <laughs> where there's a little bit of a difference of opinion. A there. little bit? Just a small a difference bit. of opinion that I might have with my beloved brother. So we curated this wonderful online program in late June of 2020. And there was something in the atmosphere. As, as we are literally going mm -hmm. through the conversation, as we got off of the call, people were sending me texts and emails, and they were like, you and Penn, y'all did the thing. There's something there. One of my closest advisors also called and said, you know you and Tony aren't done yet. And so literally in a matter of almost kind of just a day or so, I was literally getting ready to write the email to Tony. I think Tony got to it first and said, you know, brother, we are not done. Right? And, and so there was this tremendous energy that was around that moment. But that moment, the kind of freedom of that moment, actually had been set up by an earlier conversation. Because a few months before that, Tony and I had had a kind of previous exchange where we began to think a little bit about this at another Smithsonian event. So there were th these Smithsonian events where we're talking to one another over a long Saturday. We then curate a program for the Smithsonian. But the real moment that I want to talk to you all about is in July of 2020, 
I am the pastor of a radically inclusive congregation rooted in Christianity, but widely open to a variety of religious, spiritual, and ethical traditions. I invited Tony in July of 2020 to come give a talk on African-American humanism. And the way that I describe this is, you have not had church on a Sunday morning until you have one of the world's most erudite and eloquent secular humanists talking to my 80-year-old hat-wearing church mamas on Zoom. I mean, it was just an absolute thing of beauty. Tony, talk about that experience with us at the Open yeah. Church. I, I think one of the things that was important for me is with these opportunities, I had to learn, relearn how to communicate because I had spent so much time needing to be defensive. Right? Part of my soundtrack, as we would go to our professional meetings, as I would meet people, part of the soundtrack was lines from that poem, Invictus. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That would get me right. And then I'd be ready to confront. But I had to think about this differently. And, and dealing with your church folks, I mean, this was just it was a different world. There was no need to defend my position. We could just have honest conversation that your folks were willing to entertain an opinion and, and listen, right? And listen in a way that didn't involve, okay, let me get enough information to be able to tell him he's wrong, but to just engage. There was something about the conversation that humanized. And I think that's, that's rare. That's rare. Tony was quintessentially Tony Penn. We that morning on Zoom in the midst of literally life and death. At that point, I was in New York City, and I mean, you know, you remember those moments where you have trucks, ice trucks, and morgues, and 800 people dying. I mean, just there was fear and anxiety. And this conversation to invite a person like Tony to our pulpit and to talk with us was so profound because it flipped the script. Because, of course, we who are theists, and in particular, we who claim some connection to the Christian tradition, we have all, right, we've got a patent and a copyright on all that is wise and good for the world. And we found ourselves in a posture of learning and curiosity and humility. And a sacred sibling who has a vastly different perspective on how the world is organized was morally edifying us in a way that was absolutely undeniable. As we're going through the conversation, one of the members of our board of directors at the Open Church, we call our board of directors the Dream Keepers. So one of our Dream Keepers literally wrote in the chat, this is a master class on being human, being a better and so as we are in the process of, through a dear friend, a beloved friend, who does major work in these kinds of spaces as well, so I certainly want to lift the name of our beloved brother, Dr. Ibu Patel, yes. who's the president and founder of Interfaith America, who introduced us to the good people at Beacon Press. And so as we're talking with Amy, our marvelous editor, our first and kind of working title for the book was from combat to conversation. And while we actually think, kudos to Latanya, the member of the Open Church, a masterclass on being human, that has a lot more ring to it, all right? <laughs> it has a lot more ring to it. It works. Yeah, it, definitely it works. works. 
And we want you to know that the notion of moving from combat to conversation, though, is part of the ethos of this book. Because quite often, whatever the circumstance is, whether it's religious, spiritual, and ethical traditions, whether it's nationality, uh, whether it is where you fall on the political spectrum, we get so engaged by and even enraged by our perspectives and the ways in which we feel that our perspectives are so right that folks are literally killing one another around this. How can we be better humans when the things that organize our lives drive us to sometimes homicidal mania? So this is, there's a real energy, there's real life and death underneath this for us because we've been part of traditions that literally have fostered hate. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Normally I would blow some bubbles right about now, but I can't blow them in here, so. This has been such a delight to sit and be a fly on the wall of this conversation. Um, and I felt like that as I was reading, right? Like, like, I'm really like having coffee with these men in their deep intellectual conversation. It's really intellectual, y'all. Just FYI. And also, it's really beautiful. This um, give and take, this sort of dance that you do with each other. Um, so my, I, I'm struggling with a first question, but I'm gonna go with this one. What is the secret, if there is a, such a secret, to yielding the floor so that you can hear someone else's authenticity. Where does that come from? Brad's gonna go first. <laughs> as we started this project, again, in the height of the pandemic, as we say in the book, ideally we would have been together here in Houston, or in New York at a coffee shop. We would have just talked, recorded the conversations. All of those kinds of procedures and possibilities were eliminated by the pandemic. And so we, we were reduced to and we were disciplined by the medium of email. So just again, to kind of give you a sense for those who may not have had a chance to engage the book, um, in that fall of 2020 through the spring of 2021, Friday was the zone of exchange. So we said, given our kind of background, that we would dedicate every Friday. Mm -hmm. And depending on whose responsibility it was, Early on Friday, I would wait with bated breath. I'm like, that brother is going to work me over one more time. And Tony would launch out, and he would send me a 1,000 words of his thoughts on a topic. Maybe we're dealing with, does religion have a role in public? Or we're dealing with religiously unaffiliated communities. And then within 24 to 48 hours, basically, I would respond back to Tony and send a 1,000. And the next week, I'd send Tony 1,500 words, and he'd send me back 1,500 words. And part of this notion of being able to yield, I think is rooted in a profound sense of respect for the other, the journey we had been on. And I think the piece that I really wanna lift here are the two values that have so much energized me as I have been a student of Tony in this process. And that is humility and curiosity. And humility and curiosity allowed me to say, what do I not know about what's good in the world? 
unless I listen deeply to the reflections of this brother. And not be in a posture of, as Tony said, it's a character. I'm gonna just gonna take his words, I'm gonna create a caricature and fire back, but to pause, to sit back. And I'm telling you, if my wife were here, she would say, you know, they were, why, why were you always muttering on Friday? Because I'd walk around the house and man, so I want you all to be clear. Don't be thrown off by this civil look, right? Man, you pushed every button in me, right, about the things that I believed. That's mutual. And how I felt, and I mean, in challenging things that I had built my life upon for decades. But humility, I don't have it all. I'm simply walking dust, commissioned clay, I need to approach this brother because I respect him. And by the way, the brother's written more than 40 books. I respect the man that can write and edit more than 40 books. Humility and curiosity. I only have on my best days a fragment of the truth. So brother, tell me your fragments of truth. And that was the spirit, I think, that undergirded the approach. To the and, and we had some ground rules that these chapters were not going to be mini essays so any references we would not be able to make over a cup of coffee could not be made in there. So there were no footnotes. We were not going to hide behind the opinions and the words of others. This had to be us. And we had to respect the time frame. Had to respect the time frame. Keep in mind, it's 2020, COVID, new rounds of graphic anti-black racism. So what motivated this? a profound necessity that if we were honest with ourselves, we had to recognize that neither one of our communities clearly had to answer, that we needed a different way of approaching the world. We had to touch our social world in a very different way. We had to be able to name it in a very different way because what we had been doing just wasn't working. Right? So we could be egotistical and just assume, well, we just go with this, right? Just keep doing what we're doing and, and folks will fall for the okie doke and everything will be okay. Or we could be honest and say, we got to do this differently. Right? That there had to be a poetic shift. And what I mean by poetic is a willingness to destroy meaning in order to allow language to speak a different truth. We had to do this differently and everything had to be up for grabs. So we, we also had a long list of possible topics. We had a long, long list of possible topics. And we had to cut that down. And we cut it down to the topics that really pulled at us, right? The, the topics that would not allow us to just calmly discuss, the, the topics that had significance, that pulled at who we are and what we want to be in the world. And one of them is black suffering, right? What do you say about black suffering in the light of this profound round of black death, right? That, everything that we thought we knew about the ability of humans to reimagine themselves and produce new opportunities, not happening. Okay, so I wanna pull at that thread a little bit. Um, the work that I get to do in the world often has to do with black suffering. And one of the questions, and I, I already know that this is about to set off a fire, so just ignore my fire <laughs> or step right into it, either one. Um, one of the questions that people ask me often is, but do you have hope? <laughs> so, and, and I usually answer, my answer might shift now that I've been reading this book, 
But my, I usually answer, I cannot continue to do the work I do unless I have hope. But I would, I would invite you into this conversation about hope, especially as it relates to black suffering. Down south, I would say, you meddling now, right? You, 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 you are meddling. I'm, yes. I'm meddling. Yeah. You're my sister, but we disagree. And, and that's fine. Right. I'm fine with that. And, and so for me, here is the question. What does our experience authorize us to say? That the work, much of the work within the study of black religion, particularly think in terms of black theology and womanist theology, is premised upon a wish. But I think we owe folks, we owe our people a very different approach. What does our experience authorize us to say? And from my vantage point, nothing about our, our experience, nothing about our history supports the category of hope. And, and so for me, doing this work mindful of my people has required a shift in my vocabulary and my grammar. I no longer talk in terms of hope. I talk in terms of the persistence of possibility. For me, hope is too sure. It points in a direction. The persistence of possibility, for me, authorizes and validates struggle against without the assumption that this struggle will win the day. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. For me, that claims too much. What I can say, based upon how I read our experiences, the arc of the moral universe is long. That's perfectly fair. I'm not, I'm, I am not here to debate you, sir. I'm just here to, um, we're just chatting. We're just chatting. I'm just getting your opinion, that's all. I'll say on the question of hope, what for me was so fruitful in the book, because we had done this dialogue specifically on hope, so when we got to the hope chapter, I'm like, this is going to test whether or not we really are brothers. <laughs> but what I, what I appreciate in that chapter and earlier chapters, um, and I'm very grateful also, again, to, to the ways that our editors helped us to constantly think about sharpening how this was presented as we went forward, is we situated some of the hope language. And by that I mean, in the 2000, eight and nine moment with the first election of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. The argument that I make where, you know, Tony and I, there is a fundamental difference mm -hmm. and I can name even one of the things mm -hmm. that I think motivates that difference as it relates to hope, all right? I believe hope is an incredibly important organizing reality and it's something that I hold on to. It is very much a part of my moral vocabulary. The reason I'm talking about context is I argue that one of the slippery slopes we were on as a nation and world was that we had a very paltry hope and that part of the kind of fool's errand we were on in that moment is we thought that the election of the nation's first non-white president could somehow magically deal with as Tony has this, the marvelous language Tony uses around this, centuries of disregard and hate. And so part of what we get into is the, the ways in which various communities, not the least of which were mm -hmm. white progressive and liberal communities, but also a number of black communities mm -hmm. that had a, a, a very paltry hope. So my argument 
and respond to Tony with all due respect and deference, I believe that hope is a, is a meaningful moral concept still, but we need a thick hope. And for me, thick hope is not only about that which allows us to kind of have a stick to itness in an internal way, but the fundamental difference for me, I think, as I deal with Tony, is the reality that I subscribe to configurations of transcendental power, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. I believe there is divine accompaniment. However mm -hmm. that is talked about, and the language I use for that is very different than the language I grew up with, but I think very seriously about spirit, that we are accompanied by spirit, the creative spirit, there are various ways to talk about it. As you just saw me give deference, I take very seriously African infused notions of the ancestral realm and take seriously that there is help that is going alongside us. That is not necessarily right, I think. Those cosmological ways that I think are not ways that I think Tony would subscribe to existentially. Now, as one of the world's great scholars of religion, he can do all of the diagramming of it, but I don't believe that's an existential personal thing that no, you've given no. up on that a long time ago. A long time ago. Yes. And so I, that's I, different yeah. for us, I, I also wonder if we have different perceptions of the nature of our social world, right? So, so for me, what we see taking place is a graphic reminder that the system is working as intended, right? So it's not a matter of there being a glitch in our democratic, democratic processes that just needs to be rethought. And if we can get our moral and ethical center right, we will be good. No, from my vantage point, what we see happening, these graphic examples of anti-black violence, are examples of the system working as intended. And if that is the case, what does it mean to hope? Right, so I've also, the way in which I read experience, the way in which I read history has also required me to surrender some other conceptual frameworks. I don't talk in terms of liberation, I don't talk in terms of freedom. What, what conceptually anchors my work, which gives me the um, is struggle, struggle. And so from my vantage point, will we win the day as a secular humanist? My thinking is no. Are we gonna ever get rid of all this? No, we will find ways to hate and we will find new populations to hate. But what we can do through struggle is make it hella hard to normalize this disregard, right? To continuously say no to injustice in a way that makes it extremely difficult to normalize injustice. And at the end of the day, if we have a win, if we have victory, it may simply be our ability to say no to injustice with increased volume and persistence. But that's it. I think Camus is right. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Ooh wee, okay. It's getting hot in here. Okay, um, your book is titled A Masterclass on Being Human. If there were no religious text, how would we know what a good human is? Well, let me start by saying I, I have a different understanding of religion, so I don't think about religion in terms of institutions, doctrines, and creeds. For me, Religion is a device, it's a tool. 
It's a lens through which we view human experience. It's a lens through which we view human experience and invest it with particular meanings. So from my vantage point, there will always be religion. And for me to say that isn't to say jack about gods, right? It's to say something about how we interpret our experience in a way that is meant to give it some oomph, to give it some meaning. So any text can do this sort of work, right? I, I still read the Bible. I'll pause. <laughs> I, I, I still read the Bible, but I get as much in terms of religious oomph from Alice Walker, from Nella Larson, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, right? They teach profound lessons that I would consider religious based upon how I understand religion. So you are my brother and I agree. Hey, that's what I'm talking about. Right, I, I believe that most everything is sacred and most everything is secular and that the beauty is finding where those things overlap. Um, but my, to clarify my question, it's not necessarily about what is or isn't religion, but the text that we are commonly referred to as religious texts, Torah, Bible, Quran, keep going, you know the names of books. Um, if those texts that we are commonly referred to as religion did not exist, where would we find our definition for what it means to be a good human? In the run-up to writing this book, and when I talk about divine accompaniment, the universe has a marvelous sense of humor. I had an engagement as a religious leader of a very well-known large religious institution in New York City that I care about very deeply, but I resigned from that position. It was very challenging. Um, and in that moment of being wounded and thinking about what healing looks like was where, and this is 20, 2009, 2010, 2011, is where I began to think to myself, literally, I want to find out what the humanists are thinking. Because I, I don't know what I was thinking about God and religious people. and Because religious hurt is serious, right? When, when religious people do their thing, they, they come for you. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, so the irony of a decade or more, almost, right, before we actually got into writing this book, I had this kind of curiosity around these kinds of conversations that I would later have with Tony. I say that to say, if there were no, quote, religious text, one of my most life-changing experiences were these multiple trips that I've had to the African continent, and particularly the slave castles. And I've long said as a theologian um, that in ways that were very appropriate, the Shoah and the concentration camps in the 20th century changed as they needed to American and global discourse. I do not think the slave castles have ever done the same thing for American thinking, global thinking, and certainly not for the, the enterprise of theology. And so being in that experience, right, and thinking through the ways in which religion and text, as a scholar of Christian scripture, yes. the way that religious text justify a chapel where Europeans are worshiping God, literally over a dungeon that is propped up by the bones and black backs of enslaved Africans. As a scholar of religious texts, I'm like, I don't need your text 
the text that matters, that helps me to be a better human, this is the text. It is the embodied text. And Tony and I, we do a lot of talking and you know, chopping up around text. And I, I think a place where there is some real resonance between us is um, that I'm, I'm very much for the kind of open canon that mm -hmm. Tony has. I believe the Bible misbehaves as much as it behaves. Mm -hmm. But the notion of, in my engagement with this sacred text, this beloved sacred sibling, is my interaction one that creates understanding, joy, a lowering of defenses, mm -hmm. a sense of partnership. And as we engage with one another, are we mindful that we are simply guests on our planetary host? So I don't need so much text as much as I need to pay attention to text. And whether one is a theist or, or a non-theist, it seems to me there's a kind of orientating question that needs to be asked. And, and the question is simple. Who have we forgotten? Right? If we are continuously asking ourselves this question, who have we forgotten? It makes it much easier to come up with methods of living, methods of communication that are nurturing, that value life in its various forms. Who have we forgotten? Thank you. Who I haven't forgotten is this audience. Oh, and I like that. That was yes. good. <laughs> Wasn't that good? That was smooth. <laughs> and I'm certain that some of you have questions. Um, I want to create a container around our questioning. The first is, please, if you have a question, ask the question. <laughs> the second is, please ask questions related to what you have heard tonight. I know that the outside world is beating on our doors and there are many things happening in the world that might in some way relate to what we've heard. But if we could limit our questions to the things we've discussed tonight, that would be very helpful. Uh, yes, I saw this hand first. Hi, good evening. Uh, thank you, Tracy. Thank you, thank you. Hey. Uh, hey. <laughs> um, I have two questions uh, that I've been having trouble deciding between. Um, the first, and I won't ask both, the, the first question I have is, you talked a lot about creative tension, um, which sometimes means compromise, sometimes it means coming to or coming from. What is an example, if there are any, of a belief or attitude that each of you held before this process that you would swear by that is not the same on this end of the process? As I think about the engagement with Tony in this process, the place where I think more than anything Tony really pushed me was to come absolutely clean on any vestiges I was still holding on to around the problematic ways Christian theology has thought about suffering. The body of Tony's work before this project that I was familiar with, but then in this engagement, to, to really say there are some jacked up ways that Christians in particular 
have tried to approach the concept of suffering that only further increase the suffering. And so what I'm saying here is I was on that journey, but I was not as far on that journey as I had kind of prided myself on being. So Tony laid bare in a way me having to wrestle with many of the orthodox religious Christian ways of thinking about this are utterly bankrupt morally. And he compelled me to really wrestle with that in a way that at times were very uncomfortable. I had spent a lot of time trying to get humanist organizations to rethink the relationship to black church. But if I'm honest with myself, I still operate it based upon a rather simplistic understanding of black church that at times was kind of deeply dismissive. But it was impossible, and I wasn't always happy about this, but it was impossible to hold on to that rather simplistic and narrow understanding of how black church functions after engaging with the open church. It just did not work, right? And so if I was going to be honest, I had to recognize that there was a complexity to the black church that I was overlooking. That we still vehemently disagree on most theological issues, right? Absolutely. But there were ways in which I had to rethink my assumptions concerning what the black church is and how it functions. The open church forced a rethinking. I'd be intellectually dishonest to leave that conversation saying, nope, nothing about my thinking on black church has changed. Yes, there was a, a hand here. Hi, um, wow, this is really a wonderful conversation. I, I'm thinking, I'm not sure if you're equating struggle with suffering, but it seems somehow either one, people can get to clarity about what is just and unjust through that process, and others get stuck in it. So I'll say this. One of my favorite thinkers is Albert Camus. I, I just love his work. I, I wish I had encountered him much earlier in my process, and things might have been a little easier for me. I would have had a different conversation partner. But I, on some level, I would agree that he argues there are ways in which our engagement, our com confrontation with the world produces lucidity, awareness, not answers, but awareness. So I think there are ways in which our suffering, our confrontation with the world produces a very different understanding of what's at risk, what we're actually wrestling against, and what the possibilities are. One of the ways in which Brad and I disagree is I think Brad, in part because he doesn't wrestle alone, or so he believes, <laughs> has some divine assistance. So, you know, you can make the argument, hey, you know, it's my grandmother used to say God is on the throne and all is well. So there's some divine assistance. Where we fall short, God picks up the slack. So Brad has that. I don't. It's just us trying to do the best we can. And so for me, there are ways in which experience urges me to believe that struggle in and of itself is the victory. There are ways in which struggle and, and suffering are, are tangled, yes. And struggle, the ability to find something of ourselves in a confrontation in a with a world that wants us dead, that's the win. 
I want to just add, too, that the beauty of this project is the way in which the book continues to write itself. So Tony and I, as you might imagine, we are doing a number of these moments, and they're, you know, it's wonderful. This is really one of the first in a few months yeah. we've had a chance yeah. to do uh, in person. Tony was with us in Chicago a few months ago. We've done a lot of things in online spaces. And as we're driving around Houston today to this point of struggle, one of the things that you said to me in the car that really blessed my spirit. Can I, can I say, can I use language like that? Bless my spirit. <laughs> do you, he do said, you, do you. This is how, the, you should see do us you. when we're not in front of people. Right? <laughs> that really blessed my spirit was Tony's observation that to structurally change injustice in the world, we must understand what an acceptable level of discontent is. And, and part of what we're also trying to get at in this book is what are the habits of heart and mind that allow us to do the deep-seated work of addressing systemic inequity and injustice and to move beyond the very Pollyannish, can't we all just get along? This stuff is baked in for centuries and it's going to require disturbance and a level of discontent, mm -hmm. to use Tony's language, and how do we create communities yeah, that yeah. make space yeah. for that, for that level of creative, not only tension, but at times deep disagreement, right, that allows us to move past the Pollyannish yeah. to real structural change. And we have significantly different orientations, right? So Brad's orientation would suggest that our relationship to the universe has meaning. And for me, the relationship to the universe is absurd. We ask the universe questions. We demand something of the universe, and we are met with silence. For Brad, there is no silence. God responds. Thank you. We have space for one more question. I'm curious. Uh, what I heard when you were talking about hope was Brad was talking about hope as a is a dream for the future, and what I heard Tony say, it's about strategy and tactics and getting there. Is that a fair, did I hear that correctly, or did I miss something? I'd rather not use the language at all. I, 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 for me, history, our experience of the world, doesn't authorize the use of that language. I prefer persistence of possibility. Future is another category that I've given up on. We can talk about that another time, but that's another category that I don't think we are authorized. Based upon the world as we encounter it, we aren't authorized to use. And I would simply just say that as I'm thinking about hope, and I'm talking about this thick hope, I would want to ground it in a way that as it has worked in the communities that have nurtured me, it has certainly been future-oriented, but it also has been deeply connected to measurable outcomes. So for me, those are not right disparate realities. It's precisely a kind of leaning in to the future that has empowered, okay, what is step one? What is step 1.1? How do we organize to get to 1.3 and measure this? And that, that it's still quite in the tangible for me, even though it leans toward future. And we'll talk about those outcomes. Absolutely. Ooh, we, okay. This has been glorious. Y'all are my people. I, <laughs> this, may, this my, I'm in my happy place right now. Um, but I want to invite 
last words, closing remarks from each of you, and then I will share one or two words from me, whatever that's worth, and then uh, we'll go sign some books. Certainly concluding where we began with a deep affirmation for your being present with us and an opportunity to, as we say in the book, continue the curriculum, right? Ding, ding, school is in session. This is not a master class because we have answers as much as we are inviting fellow learners along the journey. And I will just say this because I like to just stir up righteous trouble all the time. That for me, the closing word, and we, we wrestle with this in the book, is I go through life better because of having a person like Tony and the traditions that he represents. And I also go through life refusing to surrender the words of that song from the tradition that nourished me. Over my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. And what a delight it is for me to hold the belief that there must be a God somewhere and yet I can sit next to a person <laughs> who fundamentally believes that that is untrue and still learn, not only with him, but from him. Thank you. I want to thank my friends at Rothko for putting this on. We are deeply grateful and thank all of you for coming and hanging out with us and, and chatting with us. I, I have to tell you, these conversations with Brad during a really dark period uh, gave me life. And being able to work on this book provided a different way of thinking about how I relate not only to my present, but new ways to value and appreciate my past. The first 25 years of my life, this has been fantastic, just tremendously important for me. And, and I think there are ways in which you speak of God, and I speak of the ways in which this serves to further humanize. Thank you so much. Um, the work that I get to do with people is rooted in two things. The first one is love. And the second one is being human. And um, this book sits right in that sweet spot between those two places for me. So thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your courageous interactions with each other and the way that you showed up for all of us tonight. Thank you. Um, We are going to very gently set our mics down on this table, and then we are going to walk across to the Welcome Center where you are invited to join us so that you can purchase the book, shake a hand, take a picture, all of those things that you were not allowed to do in here. <laughs>